Thank you so much for tuning in to the Fork Epiphany podcast. This podcast is hosted by... Good, steady pressure. That's the key. I'm all about the vagina. And I will not be judged by you or society. I will wear whatever and blow whomever I want as long as I can breathe and kneel. I believe the French had quite a bit of luck using their tongues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you call that little thing? Fork Epiphany Podcast. We're giving a big welcome back to Tammy Jo Eckhart on February 1st to talk all about chocolate. Hi, I'm Tammy Jo Eckhart, also called The Chocolate Priestess, and I am from the blog The Chocolate Cult, one of the top 50 chocolate blogs on the internet. Our first question, if chocolate wasn't available, what other food would you be interested in blogging about? That's a good question. I don't think I would be interested in blogging about another type of food or drink, just simply because of the the history of chocolate is what is... uh, Part of what's very appealing about it to me, that's because I'm a trained historian, probably, but it's just, it, it's so unique among food and drink, the way that we interact with it, the way we use it, the way it's been used in the past, how it was developed, it, it really is quite a unique substance. So if chocolate wasn't available, it would just be a blog about how horrible the world is now that chocolate's not available. I probably would not have started blogging, actually. <laughs> I would have just been writing my books and that was it. So how, how did the, I, like, you started chocolate because the history is just rich and then chocolate's also rich and you could put it in your mouth. How did you go from I like chocolate to I think I need to write about this? Well, there, are, there were three things that led me to do this. Uh, The first was that I had been joking for well over a decade that, you know, if a certain pulp fiction, science fiction writer could start a cult, why couldn't I? And the second was that I grew up really being trained to use chocolate as an emotional crutch. And I wanted to free myself of that. And one way I've learned that I can deal positively with food is that I have to be very structured about it. And so writing about it gave me a structure. It allowed me to develop guidelines about how I was going to consume it, how I was going to learn about it and use it. So it wasn't just something I could do because I felt sad or I felt angry. It was, you know, I had a purpose. And then the third thing was that I had had my PhD for two years, no job yet, because basically that's when the economy crashed and universities and colleges simply weren't hiring tenure track and it wasn't worth my family's uh, time and energy for me to go like from job to job. I really needed a tenure track position and I was getting really depressed about it. And so my therapist I was seeing at the time said, well, what's the thing you could do that you've always wanted to do? And I told her this whole thing about the cult and she said, well, you're also struggling with, with food issues and weight issues. How about you do something with that together? And so I had heard people talk about the, the, choc- the cult of chocolate before and seen things written about the quote-unquote cult of chocolate before. So I said, well, has anyone actually started a ch- chocolate cult? And I looked it up, and there was nothing like out there called the chocolate cult. And so I said, well, 
I'm going to jump on this and do it. And so at first it really was a way for me to uh, satisfy my own interests but, and to get more control over my own life. And then within two months, um, companies were willing to send me products. So. So did the structure of the blog, like like you said, like with chocolate and it not being a crutch, it being more structured, did that kind of come just organically as you started the blog? Or was this something you like sat down and figured out? I, I sat down and I said, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to write about my experiences eating chocolate or drinking chocolate or working with chocolate, what's a good way to do that? And... I think, you know, and I thought about it and I said, you know, as a, as a fiction writer, you work on describing things so that your reader can feel like they're there. They can picture what's going on. They can kind of get a sense. And I said, so how about I do that? I, I focus on all my senses. You know, there are five senses, arguably more than that, but there are five basic senses that we have. Um, and what is that experience like with chocolate? And so I just sat down and I wrote them down and I said, okay, when I do this I'm going to focus I'm going to take notes and I'm going to consume it really slowly and then I decided you know since it's quote-unquote a cult I would try to use some religious language um, so I, I developed a process of writing about the chocolate and over the years now the sort of religious language with it has fallen down a bit more um, because people reacted weirdly to just the title, the chocolate cult, people actually thought like we worship chocolate or something. And I wouldn't blame you if you did, but I can I can see their connotation with the word. Yeah, and so that part's fallen away a little bit more. I use the language every now and then, but I didn't want people to think that this was like a religion because the point is that I'm talking about how pervasive chocolate is in Western and. Uh, Central American uh, society, really, um, not that it's a religion. Though, you know, we could talk about its religious power later if you want. Um, <laughs> the power of travel. Well, if you uh, if you wanted to, could you like uh, just give us a little bit of chocolate and its history, just the fascinating parts? <laughs> <laughs> well, what a lot of people don't realize is that chocolate is a product of the Mesoamerican world. So we're talking about uh, Mexico uh, through what we call Central America, a little bit into South America. And so it was something that Europeans um, became aware of as they were conquering uh, North, Central, and South America. But the chocolate here had been around for probably thousands of years. And it was, cocoa beans were used as money. You know, there is evidence that came out last year that it was traded as far north as the American Southwest. So the, the native peoples who live in the Southwest, um, like in New Mexico and those places, they had cocoa beans. You can't grow it in the United States, except in Hawaii, but they would trade for it. And so there's this huge trade because I think, for most of us, we think of chocolate as in candy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we realize it has this thousands of years of history as, you know, as a really important trade item. Um, so I think that's the, the, the first and most important history lesson 
for us to learn today is it's this is not something that Europeans made. It's something that Europeans found and then changed and used. Um, I mean, there's there's so much. I mean, there's hundreds of years worth of history um, <laughs> that you know we could we could talk about. And I do not make claims that I am a historian of chocolate. I'm just a historian who's looked at chocolate a lot. Um, there are people who make their livelihood just writing the histories of chocolate. How well explored um, do you think the field of chocolate history is? I think it's it's thoroughly explored. I think unless they discover new Mayan or Aztec or Incan um, artifacts or writing that's deciphered, they pretty much know what is knowable at this point about it. Um, we, of course, are using things like modern science, so like we're learning things about the genetics of chocolate, and that's that's been interesting um, to read about. Again, not that kind of scientist, so I don't, you know, I can just read it as a sort of an informed layperson. But, um, you know, I, my, my literary agent will say, we could write a book about chocolate, and I look at my shelf that I have with all the books about chocolate, and I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> it, it's kind of, kind of been done. <laughs> I think it's been done. It's been done very well by a few authors. It's been done very poorly by many other authors. But um, I just don't really feel like reinventing the wheel, so to speak. Where do you see chocolate going? Do you see kind of a path where chocolate is headed, or is it is it kind of it's where it is, and it's probably going to stay that way for a while? Well, chocolate has been in the past uh, decade really expanding in terms of uh, consumer consumption. Uh, there are some problems with chocolate, cocoa, what we call cocoa trees. They only can grow within 15 degrees north and south of the equator. So the only part of the United States where they do grow cocoa trees, where they can grow cocoa beans, is Hawaii. Um, and so there's this very narrow band the thing is, right now, with uh, climate change, we don't actually know exactly what's going to happen. You know, scientists can speculate about what might happen, and there are there are two basic ideas in regard to chocolate that I've I've seen. I'm not qualified to say this one is correct and this one's not correct because I think they're probably neither of them completely correct. So one thought is that the band will get more narrow. And so the areas that we'll be able to go chocolate in will get narrower and narrower, which will, of course, increase the price. That will make chocolate become more, more of a luxury item. The other thought is that it will actually expand the band. And the locations that we can grow chocolate in will increase. And that then would mean the prices would go down. And so that more people would have chocolate. Uh, the second big problem with chocolate is actually making it into an edible form. I mean, no human's going to eat a a raw cocoa bean. I mean, have you ever uh, taken like a finger and just touched it into powdered cocoa and then tasted that? Yeah, that was a mistake. Why didn't nobody <laughs> tell me yeah. that that was a yeah. bad idea and yeah, the vodka was going to taste nasty? Yeah, and and that that's like the byproduct after some serious um, processing of the cocoa bean. So the cocoa bean itself would be, I mean, completely unedible. To, to a human, um, even to monkeys. They don't like it. Chocolate, and you've probably heard this, it melts at about the same temperature as our bodies. 
And so the growing markets are in places like India and uh, Brazil. Well, these are locations where it's great that you're getting more people to buy chocolate, but they have a great deal of difficulty actually manufacturing chocolate in these locations because it's so humid and it's so warm. And chocolate has to have both humidity controls and temperature controls to um, even formulate for the correct crystal structures of the product to form into what we call chocolate. Otherwise, it's just like, blech. Yeah. It's just basically cocoa butter and chocolate liqueur, and there's no consistency to it. And so those, those are, I think, the two environmental factors that are impeding the, the growth of chocolate. But otherwise, I mean, we're becoming a smaller and smaller world in terms of globalization. And so, you know, I, I've talk, talked to people in a lot of other countries. We've had products from Indonesia, for example, where they both grow chocolate and they can make things from the, the cocoa beans. And, you know, all the way to we've had chocolate from Iceland where they're certainly not growing you know, producing cocoa beans, but they can certainly take what they get and make it into a chocolate product. And and so the world is getting this increasing demand for chocolate and it's all a matter of the supply. Will the supply be there? So I think where chocolate is going is going to really depend on what happens to our climate. It really, really is. Now that that's that's important to think about because climate change isn't just affecting things outside of our, you know, our own reality. Like, what if there's no more chocolate? <laughs> that's actually something I'll say on the blog is when companies talk about the fact that they use you know sustainable agriculture or recycled um, containers, you know, packaging products and stuff. I'll remind readers of the you know chocolate called. I'll say. You know, as far as we know, the Earth is the only place where you can grow chocolate. Right, because we've never studied growing chocolate on Mars, if that's where we're going next. <laughs> yep. We And, you know, given the narrow band, it probably wouldn't work there. So would it work on Venus, or is Venus too hot? Venus might be too hot. We might not be able to make it there, that's for sure. Yeah, so, you know. Oh, I don't want to think about it. This is, you could write a horror movie about no more chocolate. <laughs> So speaking, this where this is going to go up in February, and we all know that chocolate is definitely a part of a February because of Valentine's Day. Um, what can you uh, tell us about the history of chocolate and Valentine's Day? Is it just completely commercialism, or was there something neat that happened in the past that made the connection? As far as I can tell, it's completely commercialism. So basically, after the Europeans get chocolate, originally they use it as medicine so they think it has you know healing qualities and then people start consuming it and they realize that it has some other qualities that are sort of like a drug really high quality chocolate um, the theobromin in it can actually alleviate high blood pressure it can um, make your headaches less it can make your eyes dilate so the world seems brighter um, it can make you feel relaxed it can make your muscles relax and so they started using it as sort of a medicine but then people started realizing hey I just feel good when I eat it so they started kind of using it as a drug and the church didn't like that oh, but after not. yeah after a while the church realized that was sort of a battle it wasn't going to win and you started getting uh, candy makers 
who were looking at chocolate and said, hey, what can I do with this? And when the candy makers got a hold of chocolate, that's when it really became commercialized. Because up until that time, we're talking like 18th century, chocolate really was a luxury item. Pretty much if you didn't have a lot of money or some sort of royal title, you were not ever going to consume chocolate. Candy makers then in the 19th century that started manufacturing chocolate and trying to find ways to get people to buy chocolate and they came up with this whole idea of uh, packing their chocolates into boxes and they started to develop themes for the boxes and Valentine's was one of the themes um, that they developed and this is in the late 19th century. So it's all just for a buck. That's okay, I'll still take chocolate on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, also, well, uh, back back to the blog. This this blog has grown, so it's not just you that is actually reviewing the chocolate that's coming your way. Um, how hard was it to get your friends involved? <laughs> um, initially, everyone just thought it was kind of funny, you know, like oh, haha, she's blogging about chocolate, and then companies started sending me stuff, and at first they were just like oh, you know, I'd write about it, and if I had some leftover, I'd share it with people. And then companies started sending me that had ingredients uh, that I'm not very fond of. In every aspect of my life, I try to be fair and objective. I started to ask my friends, does anyone here like coconut? Does anyone here like coffee? Does anyone here know anything about whiskey? You know, because these were things that I either didn't like or I didn't feel I had enough experience with that I could be, I, I could do a very good job of describing the experience of, of consuming the chocolate. The very first person who uh, started helping me, her name is Lisa, and we call her the chocolate coconut acolyte <laughs> because coconut was sort of my nemesis. It was like, I did not like it. I did not like the taste. I did not like the texture. Um, and it's in so much chocolate. And actually, I had asked my readers at the blog, I said, does anyone want to do this? And Lisa came forward, and another friend of mine replied, and they said, we'll do it. And I said, oh, two people want to do it. And so we actually had a competition, and I gave them the same product, and they each had to write a review. And I put a copy of the review on the blog, and then people had a week to vote. Oh, very neat. And Lisa end up winning. Um, since then, it's been more a matter of my asking people and kind of gauging their experience with, you know, whatever it is that I'm not overly fond of. So I have a couple of friends who uh, make their own, uh, what do you call it? They do micro brewing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or they have extensive, um, alcohol collections and many years using it. And so they help me with the alcohol products when they come in I have groups of people and now we kind of, we tend to do when I can with anywhere between one to five other people helping me depending on how much of a product we get that way I get a range of reactions and experiences because something I've learned doing this is if I taste a product if, if you and I for example sit down we had the exact same product our experiences may not be the same mm-hmm um, I, I happen to really like chocolate if it's at least 72% uh, dark. And, and I can explain what that means in a little while if you want me to. 
but other people can't stand it. Anything over. (laughs) And then there are other people who don't like milk chocolate. They don't like dark chocolate. They only like white chocolate, which is a real thing. No matter what people tell you, isn't it? Or is there actual white chocolate? It's it's actual white chocolate, and um, there are legal definitions about that. And it's it's legally chocolate. And then we have our own definitions on the chocolate call, too. See, but, this is fin- fascinating. So, it's not just chocolate. There's legal definitions of chocolate. <laughs> yes, yes. And they vary from country to country. So, yeah. So that's when I work with other people, they'll fill out little forms for me. And the thing is, if someone's going to help me, I actually train them in what to do. Like, this is how you do it. We go by what it looks like what it smells like, what it tastes like, what it sounds like, what it feels like on your tongue and your fingers, you know, that whole experience. Mm-hmm. And, and you go slowly and you pause and you think and you write. Um, and, and so for someone who wants to help me, I think initially some of my, my friends were like, oh, this will be fun, I'll get chocolate. And they realized, no, she's taking this really seriously. There's a whole lot of passion behind it, and you can totally tell. So if somebody else has, like, this idea, uh, it could be a food product, it could be anything, really, and they want to specifically open up a review blog about that, what what would your best how-to-start-a-review-blog idea of advice be? Um, have an idea of what you want to do and why you want to do it. Have come up with a procedure that you're going to follow. Come up with uh, sort of guidelines, ethics for yourself to follow. Uh, decide how you want to get the products. I mean, are these just going to be things that you buy and write about? Are they going to be things that you charge companies money to send you to review about? Um, or are you going to do a little bit of everything? You need to kind of have clear guidelines. If you, if you looked at our website, we have up there, um, we have tabs. And so the first one is the main page like where people see the articles then there's the what is the chocolate cult which tells like sort of the history of us but also how many companies we've worked with um, how many different countries we've gotten products from uh, where our readers come from that sort of thing Uh, privacy policy of course but also something called a fee schedule which talks about um, I don't charge money If, if a company wants to send me something to review I will not charge them any money because it, it took them money to make the product and send me the product. Yes. Um, and then I also do interviews uh, with a company the first time they send something. I like to talk to somebody who works there, like the chef or the person in charge of marketing or, you know, the vice president or something like that. So that our readers know that they're actual people behind the product. Um, but then I've had companies say like, well, hey, can you just like do a shout out on Facebook about us? Or could you just reprint this article we've already made? And because I'd come up with sort of these ethical guidelines for myself in this, I said, sure, but you have to pay me to do that, and I will make it very clear in the post that these are your words, not mine. Because the last thing I want to do in this blog is mislead anyone who comes to this site looking for information. Also, blogging takes time. The minimum, you need to have a new article out every... There are some people who blog who put out a new post every day. I tried to do that in the beginning, and frankly, since I'm also an author, I really didn't have time to do that and to put out the kind of quality that I wanted to do. So I would rather do, you know, 
one to three posts a week and know that they're quality than to put out something every day and basically just feel like it's something I did in five minutes. What do you do to get people, besides obviously having your CEO be chocolate, how do you get people onto your blog? Uh, lots of social media shares. Like we have, um, I have a Pinterest where I share images. Um, I do uh, Instagram. So I went on a, uh, <laughs> someone I know calls it the chocolate death march, but there there's a charity where they do a chocolate walk and you walk through an entire community and visit all the different shops and stuff and eat chocolate to benefit um, their humane society. And as I was doing that, every place we went, I took an image on Instagram and shared about it, for example. I use Blogspot, which uh, Google now owns. Uh, it shows up when people search in Google. Our posts can show up. Um, I don't pay for the post to show up, so it's not like they're guaranteed to show up in your top five or anything like that. It's more organic how it shows up. And then I'm on LinkedIn, which is how I've, I've met most of the, com- the chocolate makers and and chocolate sellers who've sent us problem products has been through LinkedIn. And I post my updates there for people to look at. So we started on February 21st. March 28th, we did our first what we call Saturday Sacrament, where a company sent us something. And it was a company from St. Louis. Okay. Um, just, you know, people might not realize this, but chocolate is regulated, as are many things. Uh, by not by just our government, but by other world governments. And if you want to know legally what chocolate is in the United States, you look up the FDA, uh, Code of Federal Regulations, Title 21, Chapter 1, Subsection B, Part 163, and it's all about cacao products. Wow. And they they (laughs) define everything um, from how it's made all the way from different types of chocolate products and also into what counts as chocolate versus candy coating. Thank you so much to Tammy Jo Eckhart for being our guest. If you want to learn more about chocolate, go to thechocolatecult.blogspot.ca. Yeah, yeah.